All right, let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 10 this morning. Daniel chapter 10, and we're going to continue in our study through the book of Daniel. We are moving right along. In, uh, in 1938, there was a Long Island man who um, bought a barometer out of the Sears catalog. Uh, it just was a novelty thing. He thought it, would, it looked good and would look good on his wall. And so uh, he ordered it. He bought it. The day came. It finally arrived. And uh, the thing, the needle on it was stuck at 950 millibars, which if you're not a meteorologist and most of us aren't, um, that's hurricane range. Um, it basically, I guess sea level, the pressure is usually around 1,500 millibars, uh, and this was a dramatic low pressure, and uh, the guy was, you know, he just was convinced the thing was broken, uh, and clearly it was, because, you know, not a cloud in the sky, sunny, everything's fine, and so irritated, he can't get this thing to work. And he has to, uh, to leave. He had a uh, business trip that he had to go on. And so he just decided, well, when I get back, I'll, I'll take the thing and package it up and, and, and return it, get myself one that actually works. Well, um, he didn't get the opportunity to do that because when he got back from his business trip, the, the barometer was, was gone, along with his house and his entire block because there was a huge hurricane that blew in in 1938. This was before they named hurricanes, but it got the nickname, uh, well, it got several nicknames. The Long Island Express was one of the nicknames for the hurricane that hit in 1938. It was devastating. Actually, uh, 800 people were killed in that hurricane and and tremendous property damage. Uh, Up until the hurricane they just had in the New York area, Hurricane Sandy, it was the most costly hurricane up until just a couple of years ago or last year. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the issue here is that the warning was clear and he just was ignorant in picking up on it. He saw the signs, he saw the, the conditions, the, the immediate things of the current day, but the guy couldn't look down the road. Proverbs 22.3 says, a prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. And the big idea of, of Daniel chapter 10 uh, is responding to warning signs. That's the big idea here of this chapter. The first six chapters of Daniel, if you've been with us through the study, you know that they're mostly historical, uh, chronicling what happened to Daniel and his companions as they were taken captive, as the nation of Israel taken captive into Babylon because of their sin and their disobedience, and a lot to learn there in the first six chapters, Uh, mostly historical. There's some, some dramatic prophecy that takes place in there, some dreams that are interpreted and so on. But the final six chapters are, are expressly prophetic in nature. These final six chapters are a series of prophecies uh, that are given and, uh, and interpreted, and uh, we have been looking at them. Uh, many of these prophecies, dramatic in their scale and scope, in that we see given hundreds and hundreds of years in advance, very minutely detailed, and now with the benefit of hindsight of history, we can look back and say, well, I'll be doggone, every single one, absolutely fulfilled. As we've seen, this is one of the ways that God authenticates his word. Listen, I'm God. I tell you what's going to happen, he says through the prophet Isaiah. Only I tell you what I'm going to do before I do it. Uh, and, and that's exactly what, what, what God did. Uh, he said way in advance, this is what's going to happen. This is, this is how it's going to happen and, and all. And, and uh, 
most of these prophecies we've looked at uh, have come true. And certainly the ones that have not, it's only a matter of time. And so uh, this is what we've been looking at, these, these uh, first six uh, historical accounts, the last six mostly prophetic visions. And chapters 10 through 12 uh, make up the final vision. Uh, here in chapter 10, we're going to have the introduction to the vision. Uh, next week in chapter 11, we're going to have the vision itself. And after that, when we get to chapter 12, uh, it will be the conclusion of the vision and the conclusion of the book uh, of Daniel. So we're in the home stretch. Um, and the key to the next three chapters is actually found here in chapter 10. If you give your attention there to verse 14, this is the key to the next three chapters. We read, uh, now I have come, this is an angel speaking to Daniel, now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people, Daniel being a Jew, so he's talking about, hey, here's what's going to happen to your people, the Jews, uh, to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. And so, in other words, the vision establishes three things. First of all, the, the vision established, the, the, the purpose of the vision um, is to understand the ultimate fate of the Jewish people. That's the purpose of the vision. The second thing that the, the vision, uh, or that this verse establishes, is the perspective of the vision. Um, and the idea is that it's looking ahead to the latter days of the tribulation period. In other words, this vision is looking forward to the end of time. Um, if you were with us last week in Daniel chapter 9, we looked at what is called the 70 weeks of Daniel. Uh, and that last 70th week is a period of, of time, it's, uh, uh, it's a seven-year period of time where um, we're going to go through the the. the what the, what's called the, the tribulation. This is the time when Antichrist comes to the world and when there's great tribulation and, and, and all. And um, we're going to be looking at that in greater details in the, in the next couple of weeks. Um, the, the third thing that this, this verse establishes, uh, Daniel 10, 14, not just the purpose of the vision and not just the perspective of the vision and then it's looking ahead to the latter days of the tribulation period, but it, it also um, it establishes the prolonged nature of this vision that we're going to uh, really be getting into next week um, in the sense that it's going to cover many days leading up to the tribulation period. Many, many years of events are, uh, are going to unfold as far as this vision goes out and the, what, it, what it refers to. And indeed, history shows the fulfillment of this last vision has already started, that there's many events that this vision uh, forecasts that have already come to pass, that are coming to pass, some that have yet to come to pass, and so it covers a great length of time. And again, we're going to get into the specifics of this vision next week, but uh, there's a lot to see here in the introduction. Um, and it really, uh, just a, a tremendous amount for us to glean uh, here uh, today. Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. Uh, you remember when Daniel was taken captive, his, his Hebrew name, Daniel, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar renamed him, calling him Belteshazzar. And so that's the reference there. The message, uh, verse 1 continuing, was true, but the appointed time was long, uh, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. 
Verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, what's going on here? Why is Daniel mourning? This is an important question for us to consider because the answer really shapes uh, the, the events that are going to transpire here in this chapter. It really critically important. What's going on, Daniel? Why are you mourning? Here's what we can get a clue from as far as why he's mourning. If you look there in verse 1, the timing of what's going on, it says very specifically, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So why are you mourning, Daniel? Okay, he's in the third year of Cyrus. Why is that significant? Well, if, if you read in the book of Ezra, what you find there is that Two years prior to this, what we're reading right now, um, was the first year of King Cyrus's reign. And when King Cyrus ascended uh, to the throne, when he took over the, 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 the ruling uh, of Babylon, he issued a decree in the first year of his reign that the, the, the Jews should return to their homeland. Remember, they've been in captivity for 70 years and now, here, you know, during his first year of reign, he said, We're, I issue this decree, you can go back to your homeland. And, and what we come to find is that here, three years later, um, a small remnant indeed went, but the majority stayed behind in Babylon. Why? They got comfortable. Even though they were taken captivity, even though they there in Babylon being captive, they had an entire generation of them now over the course of 70 years, they had acclimated and they had grown complacent, they had grown comfortable. Now, again, this is only two years into the process. If you were with us when we went through the book of Esther, the book of Esther is interesting because that's 50 years down the road from where we're at chronologically here. 50 years down the road as we went through the book of Ezra, what we saw then was how that worked out for the nation of Israel. Because choosing to be complacent and choosing to stay in the land of captivity, what we saw which which happened in the the life of the Jews, we saw that an entire generation of of the Israelites stayed behind and and they there largely forgot God. And when you consider all of what transpired, you know, here at this time, looking forward now 50 years in the book of Esther, the book of Esther starts to make a lot of sense. Because now they've been living in captivity, they've largely forgotten God, now an entire generation just completely giving up on the promises of God and settling down and making this world their happy home. And and so as you study the book of, of, uh, of Esther, what you do is you get to the place where, well, God's never mentioned in the book of Esther, You go through the only book of the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. Not only is his name not mentioned, there's not even a vague reference to him. There's not even some sort of divine title or pronoun that's used to refer to God. He's just flat not referred to at all in the entire book. And yet the heathen king is mentioned 192 times. 
And so when you understand the history of where they're going to get 50 years from now, you can understand so clearly while Daniel is mourning, why Daniel is mourning now. Because basically, they're forgetting God, and 50 years down the road, they're going to get to the place where his name isn't even mentioned because they've flat out forgotten him. They've flat out just put him out of their lives. And what you have there in the book of Esther is events that are centered around a nation that's living outside of God's will and a people who are basically estranged from God by their sin and their poor choices. Now that's the book of Esther, 50 years from now down the road. Daniel here is only two years down the road, and yet he's already seeing what's coming, and he's mourning. First question for you, first point of application is this, are you looking down the road? Are you looking down the road in your life? See, because the the nation of Israel here is so reflective of us in that we can get to that place in our life where we become complacent and where we settle in, in a land, in a, in a, in a living in a world where God has said, I want you to come out from them and be separate. Where uh, God has said, look, your home isn't this world. You are pilgrims passing through. If you have asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, then the Bible says that this world is not your home. The Bible says heaven is your home. And we eagerly await our Savior from there. We pilgrims passing through. This world is the Titanic. And so many people are content to to start arranging the furniture on the Titanic and making it, and this is where I'm going to live, and this is where, and and we'll we'll take our meals here, and we'll do this over here, and we've got this activity over here, and then meanwhile, the sucker's sinking right underneath us, man. And and so the, 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 the mourning of Daniel's heart is very real in that he's looking down the road and he says, we're in trouble because the people have become complacent in captivity. Have you? Have you? Are you looking down the road in your life? Are you taking a good long look at what you're involved in right now? Again, Proverbs 22.3, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. You ever watch a horror movie? You ever, you, you sit there and you, you watch a horror movie? Who, who is the one that the psychopaths always get? It's always, it's always the one that goes, oh, why is this door open? Oh, and there's some blood on it. And he starts walking in and you're like, get out, run, get out. You're screaming at the screen and then pretty soon, ah, 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 you know, he's the one that gets it, right? And, and so, you know, the, the moron, we sit there as an onlooker and we're like, this guy can't, this guy can't, he doesn't have a clue, he can't buy a vowel, he doesn't know what's going on, he's walking in, the doors, you know, Ooh, what's going on? And there's so many people live their life like that. Brenda and I, we had um, these people that we knew and, and, you know, years ago, and, and uh, husband and wife, they had... Um, they had a funny kind of relationship in the sense that the, they, were, they were big into, you know, doing stuff with their friends, you know, individually. And uh, so the, the, the husband would have, you know, it's guys night out. Uh, it's, uh, it's guys weekend away, you know, whatever. And he'd go do stuff with his buddies. And, uh, and then she'd have, oh, it's girls night out. You know, it's girls weekend away. And, um, and Brenda and I, you know, it's like that, you know, <laughs> the horror movie kind of thing. We're like, run, run, don't do that. And telling them, look, you guys, you're 
this is not healthy for your marriage, man. Guys, night out. Guys, weekend away. I mean, you know, the Bible says uh, to, to flee your youthful lust, man. And no, you're running right into a place of temptation and all. This isn't healthy for you. And sure enough, man, this gal, she and one of her girls, you know, weekends away, one of her girls' nights out, I mean, they'd go dancing and, and all that stuff. And she, you know, started liking this guy she danced with. And before you know it, they're having an affair. She ran off with him. And again, man, it's like she didn't look down the road. It's not like she wasn't warned, man. That barometer needle was stuck on stupid, man. This is bad idea. But, you know, they, they just didn't look down the road. And, you, you know, you, you say that exam. I mean, Brenda and I are big on that. We, we talked at our marriage retreat this week, and we had an awesome time at the marriage retreat, and God, you know, moving and working and all. And we were talking about how we learned early on, Brenda and I, because, you know, you, you come into marriage young and dumb, and uh, we had all kinds of, you know, I had female friends, she had male friends, and what we realized really early on in our marriage was, um, that's, really, that's a really bad idea. It's just a really, and we called them unhealthy associations. It's like, you know what, I need to change, I need to change my associations, man, because it's, it's just not healthy. And, and, you know, we would say that and have an occasion to tell people over the years, look, that's really not wise. You're not looking down the road here. And uh, we would have people go, oh, man, you're being legalistic about it. That's just stupid. Why can't I have my friends? And I, I'd say, listen, that's not a legalistic thing. It's just a wisdom thing. Proverbs 4, verses 14 through 16, put it on the screen for you. It says, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. Now, I want you to notice there's a path. Leave that up for a second. Notice there's a path there. There, there, there. There's a path. Do not enter the path of the wicked. There's a process. Do not walk in the way of evil. There's a penalty. Ultimately, somebody falls. There's a path, there's a process, and there's a penalty. And and here's the truly amazing part. When you consider Daniel here in Daniel chapter 10, they're already living in captivity. This is, you know, this is a whole group of people. They collectively are in captivity because they disobeyed God. They thumbed their nose at God. And, and so the very fact that they live in Babylon in captivity is a testament to their being stupid and, and ignoring God and just thinking that they know better than God. And yet now, here they are. God says, okay, you've been on timeout long enough. They're like, eh, we like it here. They think I'll hang out here. Totally a picture of us, man, when we get comfortable and complacent in this world. You'd think they'd have learned long ago, hey, we need to obey God. But man, even in captivity, their capacity to sin against God remains. Paul was speaking to Timothy, writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor. And and he said this, he said, and a servant of the Lord, he's trying to tell this this, this kid, listen, this is, you need to be a pastor and you need to be a servant of the Lord. And he's telling him what that ought to be. He says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. 
I'm profoundly appreciative when I look in the rearview mirror of my life for God's patience and long-suffering with me. Aren't you? Aren't you? Aren't you? Don't you? When you think back to who you used to be and all that God put up with you, isn't it amazing? It's funny. Last night, I, w- I was working on the message, and uh, we had kind of a busy weekend. You know, I had... I'd, put together a workshop for the marriage retreat, and I had to teach a main session at the marriage retreat. Uh, I had to put together the message for here, and in the middle of all that, uh, my son and his wife had uh, my grandson, my fifth grandson, thank you, Jesus, and um, that was a, a crazy little whirl right there in the middle of that, but anyway, so I got home last night, and I'm like not done with the message, so I'm sitting there working on the message, and I had a lot of different windows up. One of the windows I, I had up on my computer was Facebook, and all of a sudden, it beeps, you know, or whatever, when somebody sends you a, a, a message. I get on there, and, and this gal sends me this message. She was my next-door neighbor like almost 45 years ago when I was, when I was a, just a little boy living next door to them, and, and she says, you know, are you Teddy Leavenworth? used to live on Paul Avenue. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I write her back. I'm like, yeah. And she's, she says, I, you know, I'm, I see you're in Temecula. I'm in Temecula right now visiting a friend. I'm like, come to my church. She came here this morning, and uh, she shows up, and we're talking, and she, she says to me, she goes, I, you were a, a hoodlum in the, in the, you know, all the stuff that I did. She says, you showed up at my mom's house and you had a bowl of, of tadpoles and you tried to sell her a tadpole. And when she didn't want to buy a tadpole, you came back about 10 minutes later, same bowl filled with marshmallows. Do you want to buy a marshmallow? You know? <laughs> but, you know, and then we got into memory lane of this stuff that was really, you know, hoodlumistic, uh, if that's a word. I'm so grateful for God's patience and long-suffering with me. Because I think back to, you know, the sinner that, that, that I was, and, 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 and still am, but just how God has been so patient with me, has been so long-suffering. And what Paul is telling Timothy here, he's basically saying, look, you got to be patient with people. Because the thing is, is that, man, you, gotta, you just got to hope and pray that God's going to bring them to a place of repentance. That they can come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Because, listen, he says, having been taken captive by him to do his will. There's so many of us, we've been taken captive by the enemy. My fear, my concern is that there's, there's some of you here today. You know, you, know, you, you think about, oh, you know, God has been so patient and long-suffering with us, and, you know, t- I'm talking about the rearview mirror of, you know, the, the old man that I once was, not to imply that I'm perfect, because I'm not. I'm, you know, he's faithful to complete us, you know, and so it's an ongoing work, but man, I think of, you know, Aaron bringing him up here and what God radically did in his life, and really, he, you know, for all of us, we, we're, it's that we were, we were ensnared by the devil, we were taken captive by him to do his will. Again, my, my concern, some of you, you're still living in that place of captivity. The enemy has just taken you captive. And, and what I'm wondering when I'm talking about, hey, are you looking down the road? What I'm wondering is, do you need to come to your senses today? Has the enemy taken you captive to do his will? Have you, you settled into a comfortable place in this world? See, because here, 
the Jews during this period of time, they've got the green light, man. And God is saying to them, you don't have to live in captivity. You, you, can, you can leave. The edict has gone out. You can go. Don't settle. Some of you, you're settling. And I would just implore you, man, look down the road. Because the sun may be shining and there may not be a cloud in the sky, but that hurricane is coming. We have to look down the road. Paul said to the Ephesians, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Well, Paul's, or, or, uh, Daniel's uh, second point that we, we glean here is not only are we looking down the road, but secondly, I'd have you write this down. Do you mourn over sin? Do you mourn over sin? As we see Daniel here, well, he's mourning, isn't he? Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Let me set this up for you. Leading up to Matthew chapter 5, basically in, in chapter 4 we see Matthew, he's, or rather Jesus, he's, he's just getting ready to start his earthly ministry. And, uh, and so there in, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and all. And he, so he's tempted by Satan. And, uh, and then having been uh, tempted by Satan, now Jesus comes back, and now he begins his earthly ministry. And you don't have to turn there, it's just set up for chapter 5, but in verse 17 of chapter 4, it tells us from that time when Jesus returned from the temptation in the wilderness, that's when Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we come now, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, this is the message. This is, his message is one of repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's crying out to everybody. He's basically saying, listen, you know, you need to be saved. You need to repent of your sin. And so we pick it up in, in, in Matthew chapter 5. This is his famous Sermon on the Mount. It's been, it's been said that if you took every incredible writing that has ever been written and you, you took out any sort of superfluous information and you just kept the cream of the crop of every amazing thing that mankind has ever written, you would have a, a poor substitute for what was said by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And so here we have Jesus in that place, in that having been tempted, coming just with the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We read in verse, five, or, uh, verse one of chapter five, and seeing the multitudes... He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now what you need to see here is that what Jesus is articulating is a progression that happens in our lives. 
He starts off by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the idea, the, the, the inference there, the implication is that you and I are spiritually dead. And what he's saying is, blessed are you when you come face to face with the reality that you are spiritually dead, that in you nothing good dwells. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to, the, to face judgment, and the, the fact of the matter is, is the earthly life, the physical tent that we live in has an expiration date on it. The statistics are in. Your prognosis is not good. One out of every one person dies. Nobody lives forever. And so then what are you left with? Well, what you're left with is you're going to fa- come face to face because you are more than physical. You are also spiritual. And so your spiritual you, your spiritual being, the part of you that's going to last and live forever, you will live forever. I don't care what your belief system is. You're going to live forever spiritually. The question is where? Where are you going to live forever? Is it going to be heaven? Is it going to be hell? And hell is just a a simple place of, listen, if you choose to reject God, there's only one place you can live, and that's hell. The definition of hell is that you're separated from God. And so what Jesus is saying here is, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize that, the, that me, the spiritual being that's going to live forever, apart from Jesus Christ and his atoning work, my destination is hell. And so blessed are you when you were poor in spirit and you recognized, I need Jesus Christ. I need to be saved. I need to be born again spiritually. So blessed are you when you come to that place where you recognize that my spirit is a sinner, The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we'll believe in the Lord, he'll save us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the idea here of mourning is that I'm mourning over my condition. That I come face to face with the idea of, man, in and of myself, Ted's a piece of work. I'm mourning over that. I'm a sinner. God, help me. Jesus told a story of a religious man and then this, this, this guy who's, who the religious men just couldn't stand, a Samaritan. And, and the religious man was praying and he's saying, God, I thank you I'm not like other men. And I do all these religious things. And he says, now this other guy, this this Samaritan guy, he's praying and he just beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. And he said, which one of those guys went went away right with God? Well, it wasn't the guy who was saying, oh, I thank you that I got it all together. Jesus said, it's the guy who, who mourns over his spiritual state. And that's exactly what he says here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness has been defined as strength under control. And the idea and the implication here is that it's a humble strength. And we're talking about a progression here. So what happens is, is that you, you, in the beginning, you're, you recognize I'm poor in spirit. Then you mourn over your spiritual condition. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What happens then? Well, now you're a meek person in the sense that, listen, I, I, there's no strength in me. My strength is in you. 
It's, the, it's this, this humble worship and, and, and recognition of the Lord. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. This attitude of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the picture of, man, I, I'm just I'm seeking after the Lord. I, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting to know him. It's, 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 if I can use a $5 Christian word, it's sanctification. The hungering and thirsting for righteousness is you when you get saved saying, Lord, I just want to know you better and I want to grow in, grow in faith with you. The majority of you here are in this category. You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's why you're here. You want to know God. You want to be conformed into his image. And so God's doing this work and this transformation taking place. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Listen, you've received mercy from God. What else can we do but, but offer mercy to other people because we recognize, man, God's been gracious and merciful to me. Man, I need to be a broker of that mercy because I've certainly received it and I'm so thankful for it. And if I'm going to be merciful to others, then God's going to be merciful to me. And so he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And we, surrendering our lives to him, and, and all we become followers of the Lord, we ourselves become peacemakers as well. The, the Son of God, who, who is the Prince of Peace. Now, we can be called sons of God as we ourselves are, are peacemakers. The idea here is in Daniel chapter 10, that's the key. He's, he's mourning. He's mourning over his sin. He's, he's in, as we consider this spiritual progression here, Daniel's in a state of mourning. He's mourning over the sinful state of his people. They've grown comfortable in their, in their captivity. And can I tell you, this is the key to living the Christian life. Not to grow comfortable in our captivity. Not to grow comfortable in the world in which we live. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is our reasonable service. We, we, we're supposed to, to, to come to God and present. It, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice means to set near, it means to take my life and to present it to God. It's, it's, that, it's that thing that says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to set my life near to the things of this world. I'm going to set my life near to God and I'm going to seek Him. And I'm going to mourn over that spiritual state. And so many today, rather than moving forward in victory, they live in bondage to sin and to the things of this world. And the result is that we have a generation of people who pay lip service to the things of God. But when you look closer under their lives, just under the surface, what you find is that there's no real difference between that person and God. And, and, and I just want to challenge you with this question. I want to be clear on this. Because what Daniel is doing is he's saying, well, we should have gone two years ago, and the majority haven't. You say, well, why was Daniel there? Well, his position obligated him there. That's where God has him, and he's obligated in that position. And, and, I, and I have no doubt what's going through Daniel's mind is, I can't go, and I want desperately to go, and yet all these people have the green light, and they're sitting around, and they, they won't go. Just mourning over that state. Here's what I want you to hear. Are you in the place today where something in your life that you've been involved in, you ought to be mourning over it, and instead of mourning over it, 
You're winking at it. You're celebrating it. You just sort of sweep under the rug the feelings of guilt and condemnation and you say, I'm not going to look at that. I'm just going to continue to do this because I'm comfortable. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6. He said, what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from, unbelie- from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. That doesn't mean that, that you don't witness to unbelievers. That doesn't mean you don't love unbelievers. It means you don't become like unbelievers. There ought to be a difference in how you live your life as a follower of God. The things that mourn God should mourn you. The things that, that make him joyful and bring him pleasure are the things that should bring you joy and pleasure. And again, I just challenge you to take that long look in the mirror and say, is my life one that, that is, is embracing sin or mourning it? The Apostle, Paul, or Apostle John warned, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Turn real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Interesting thing happening here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, really, as you read through the whole epistle of 1 Corinthians, maybe you're with us when we went through it. Basically, you've got a lot of church, a lot of, you've got a church here in Corinth that um, they're involved in a lot of bad stuff. You know, they're, they're, they're living in sin and going to church on Sunday. That's what they were doing. Um, it kind of sounds familiar. It's kind of the generation that we're living in right now. This is why, you know, Christianity is, is so vilified these days because there's so many just people living in hypocrisy. And an unbelieving world looks on and they say, there's no difference. You know, why should I want what you've got? Because you're just a you're hypocrite. I mean, you go into church on Sunday and it's all, you know, kumbaya kind of stuff. And then you go out and you do the same stuff I do. And there ought to be a difference, and that's really the big idea of 1 Corinthians. And Paul's talking to this church. He's like, wake up. What are you doing? Here in chapter 5, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are not, or rather, you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. In other words, what Paul's saying to these people is he says, look, you've got a whole group of unbelievers over here, and yet you've you got a guy in your church who's sleeping with, looks like his stepmom, and, and the unbelievers over here, they look on, they won't even do that kind of stuff. They look at this guy, and they're like, yuck. You know you're jacked up when the unbelieving world looks on at you as a child of God and says, man, that's nasty. And that's what he's saying. They're looking, unbelievers looking on going, that's, that's some nasty stuff right there. And what's the church doing? The church is basically, they're, they're, they're saying, oh, you know, what, we're going to be tolerant to this guy. You know, and we're going we're gonna to love on this guy. Paul says, you are not doing this guy any favors. He goes on and he says this. He says, for I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present. 
him who has so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you're gathered together among, uh, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destru- destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You're like, oh, that's, that's, not, that's not love. Yes, it is. So what Paul is saying here is you're not doing this guy any favors by just saying, oh, brother, come on, we all sin, and come on and all, and you're just sort of encouraging him his sin, and you're giving him the false hope that he can continue living like that and acting like that and, and hope that he could be right with God. Paul says, no, 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 here's what you do with him, and this is what love is. You say, you, my friend, are not living consistent with what you're preaching. Your faith says this, your lifestyle says this, so guess what? You need to make a decision. And as long as your lifestyle says this, we're going to tell you, as your brothers in Christ, because you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you need to go there. Go, you go do that. And he basically says, let Satan work this guy over, and he will come to the place where he comes back, God willing, to the church to say, I have had my fill, and I've eaten my full of this pig's trough. God forgive me, and come back. And this is what he's talking about. And so are we mourning over sin? Are we winking at it? Verse 10, back in Daniel. Suddenly a hand touched me, Daniel continues, which made me tremble on my knees. Oh, I'm sorry, wait a minute. I skipped over a whole section. Forgive me. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, or uh, uh, verse 4. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, as, as uh, I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of, of Uphaz, his body like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, along with the vision, uh, or saw, uh, I'm sorry, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Kind of friends you want, they get scared, they run away and leave you alone. Uh, therefore, now why did they run away? Because he says, I, was the, I alone saw the vision. So what were they scared of? It was the booming voice. That's what freaked them out. Verse 8, therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength yet I heard the sound of his words and, and while I heard the sound of his words I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. What we have here is a description of the Lord. If you take Revelation chapter 1, where the Apostle John saw the Lord, caught up into heaven and saw the Lord, and you take his vision there and you superimpose it over the description here, the, the, cont- or the, 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 the comparison is striking. And, 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 and it's just, it, you can superimpose the one over the other as a very clear description of, of his seeing the Lord. Now, just in your mind, I I want you to to go back to Matthew chapter 5 because basically what we saw there was as Jesus going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapter 5, and he talked about how uh, if you, um, uh, he, he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. 
And what we see in Daniel, here is a man uh, pure in heart. His desire is to follow the Lord. He's followed in, man, he's, he's cried out in anguish for his people, and his fervent desire is to see the Lord. And it says that when that is your fervent desire, when, when you have this, this pureness of heart, that you will see the Lord. And this is exactly what's transpiring here. He's in the act of mourning. He's, he's in the act of seeking after the Lord. And now he sees the Lord, the Lord revealing himself to him in a, in a very clear and distinct way. Verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. In other words, he's, he's, he's on his hands and knees and he's shaken, he's trembling. And, and it seems, by the way, when you read this, just having come off the description of the Lord, it seems like the Lord himself uh, has touched Daniel. What we're going to see is that's not the case. This is someone else who has touched Daniel. And that's why some people, they read this and they're like, well, gosh, the, the comparison, verses 4 through 9, clearly a description of the Lord. But then when you get on, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but when you read on, you see that basically uh, this, this person, the hand that touched him, tells him how the, he's encountered a spiritual battle and how he was detained. Uh, by, by the enemy and how he needed to call out for help. And that hardly describes our Lord. He doesn't need nobody's help, you know? And so what happens is suddenly a hand touched me. Well, this is another hand. He's talking about an angel. He says, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man, man uh, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for I have now been sent to you. Another clue that this is not God. This, is, this, this angel has been sent by God. Uh, while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, verse 12, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. Verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, this is Michael the archangel, uh, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Now, this is one of the most remarkable, interesting sections of Scripture in all the Bible when we read this. And we don't really have an explanation of the particulars of this event um, as to why this angel was detained. This is just a remarkable thing that here Daniel's crying out to the Lord. The Lord dispatches an angel and we see this angel get into this conflict and be delayed for such an extended period of time. Now, who, who delays him? Well, he says that it's the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then he says the same thing in the end of the verse in the plural, the kings of, of Persia. So who's he talking about? Well, interestingly, in Luke chapter 4, I'll put it on the screen for you, we have this exchange that happens between Jesus and the devil during his time of tempting in the wilderness. And here's what the devil said to, to Jesus in that time of temptation. The devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you for their glory or, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, you'll notice as you go through that account, Jesus doesn't, doesn't argue that point with him. He's, he, Satan is basically saying, look, I own all the kingdoms of the world. They're mine. 
And that's true. He gives them to whoever he wished. So when, when this angel tells Daniel that the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and, and then later the, print, the, 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 the kings of Persia makes reference to them, what we see is these are people whose dominion has been given to them by Satan. What does that mean? It's a demonic influence. And what we do here is we have this curtain that has been pulled back for us to see from the physical into the spiritual. And can I just tell you that the spiritual realm is very, very real. See, and that's the point here. We might not understand exactly why this guy was was detained, why this angel was detained. That's not the point. The point is that he was detained and that there was a great spiritual conflict such that he had to call for reinforcements. What I want you to get is that, man, the, the enemy is real. Ephesians 6.12 tells us this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I had somebody come up to me after first service. They said, wait a minute, there's, there's demonic realm in the heavenly, there's demonic forces in the heavenly realm? Absolutely. We're talking about the spiritual realm. And there's a great battle that's taking place. The Bible says that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. There is a great demonic host that is operating in this world. And we get a glimpse here behind the curtain to see that this demonic realm is very, very real. And that brings me to my third point, which is this. Not only are you looking down the road, not only do you mourn over your sin, but thirdly and finally, do you have someone to help you? Do you have someone to help you? Because you need help. You need help. And what we see here is that this angel sent by God, if he needed help, how much more do we need help? We definitely need those that are going to come alongside and help us. And we definitely need to understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spirit, principalities. It's against powers. It's against the, the rulers and, and the forces in this dark age. And we need to be able to, to fight in the spiritual realm. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus to Peter, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus talking to the disciples, and we see this this whole series of things happening, and even at one point on the night that he's going to be betrayed, the disciples are still having the age-old argument, who's the greatest, and all this stuff, and then so so what, what happens there is Peter's all boastful, and he thinks he's going to be all that with Jesus, and Jesus is like, you're going to deny me? He's like, no, it's not going to happen, and Jesus says this to him, Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Now we we read that a lot of times, but I don't know about you, that that last part about strengthening your brothers, man, that just stood out to me in in my time of study this week. See, because that's the thing. You can't do it alone. We, we need to have those that, that are going to be available to us and us to them to be strengthened and to encourage one another. It has to happen that way. And I just ask you, have you let someone in to strengthen you? 
So often, and, and we, we both do this, both sexes, but the men of y'all, guys, you're the worst offenders in this. We are the worst offenders in this. We put the mask up. We put the, hey, it's all good. Inside, we know it's a train wreck, but I don't want you to know it's a train wreck. I got it. I got it. I'll take care of it. Those of you men are on the men's retreat. I got this. Remember that testimony? We ain't got nothing, man. And so the thing is, is that we need really to, 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 to humble ourselves. Some of the sweetest things that I have seen happen is when guys pick up the phone and call me and they say, my life's a wreck. And they, and they confess it. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess means to agree with God. Hey, I just agree, I need help. Some of y'all, you need help. Can I just tell you, man, our men's ministry, our women's ministry, our growth groups, uh, mothers of preschool ministry, they're all designed so that we can be real with one another. I just want to be real with one another. I don't want to play church. I want us to gather together and to be honest with one another and be able to say, I've made a mess of things. And have a brother in Christ who's going to love you enough to say, well, it's not, that's not cool for you to stay there. But who will encourage you and say, come on, let me help you get to where you need to be. That's the big idea here. And so as, as, as we close this message and we come to the communion table, the idea here is that we, as we close every week, as we're coming to the communion table saying, this bread, it's the symbol of Jesus' body broken for us. The, the cup, it's the symbol of his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And he did this because you ain't got this. And so, so we have in Christ Jesus this forgiveness and, and, and this, this, this reconciliation with the Father that's available to us. And it's all predicated on us just confessing and saying, you're right, I, I ain't got this, I can't do this. And God makes it clear in his word, not only that, but if you're going to go forward, man, you need, you need some help. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two people are better than one. They're better off than one for they can help each other succeed. But if one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. That third cord is Jesus Christ. So we're going to be connected one to another. We're going to be bound together by the love of Jesus Christ and having him central in our lives. And in so doing, guys, we will conquer. As we close in prayer, I just want to challenge you Some of you here, you've never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you today in time of prayer, you can do that. Many of you here in this closing time of prayer, you're in a place where, man, you're not mourning over the sin in your life. And the Lord would say, man, you need to take that thing seriously and mourn over that and repent of that. And again, as we close in prayer, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that.